I think of climate change solutions as living on a spectrum. And on one spectrum is the mitigation side of things. So just purely how can we reduce you know, carbon emissions, methane emissions. On the other side of the climate spectrum, I think of it as the adaptation side, which is solutions that, okay, like we accept that this is going to happen to some degree, but we also know um, optimistically that humans will adapt and live in the world as it changes. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, there's a lot of people you can go out and ask, what do we need in the world? What do we need in the country? And they'll say, we need farms. And there seems to be a shortage, maybe shortage of farmers. There's a lot of people that want to farm. A lot of people that feel like they need more farms, people that are concerned about local food production, that could they get more just produced locally? Well, there's a lot of obstacles to that. And my guest today is uh, involved with a project that is, I think, pretty unique in that regard. And I want to welcome Jake Felser with Freight Farms. Hey, Jake, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thanks for having me. Hey, Jake. I wonder if you've ever been someplace where they're saying, gee, I wish we could farm. And you're tempted to jump in and say, well, we might be able to help you out with that. I mean, I think all the time, uh, <laughs> you know, you see this all around you, really. And I, one of the things that was very interesting about the pandemic, I think, and especially the early stages of the pandemic, was that a lot of people in our communities and, and my community went to the grocery store and discovered empty shelves uh, because shipping and farming was so impacted by that. And that was uh, an event that really raised awareness. And I got to have that conversation a lot, I feel like, um, and, and about what we're doing. So did, now we're going to talk about what you're doing and how that uh, is so tempting for you to jump into those conversations and saying, well, we've got an idea here. We've got something at, well, let's, in fact, let's do go back and start at the idea. Someone must have scratched their head after a while and said, I think, I think this might work. And so now what we're going to talk about, Jake, is what is this? Uh, you might get a hint when we say freight farms, which by the way, the first time I saw it, I thought it said freight farms. I thought it was just like for Halloween or something, but then I realized I had not written down the E in the, in, in, in the freight. So it isn't freight farms. It's actually, actually freight farms. So let's talk about the, let's talk about the concept. Uh, what was the idea? What was an inspiration that there might be something here that you should, your company should pursue? Absolutely. Yeah. So Freight Farms actually started about 10 or 11 years ago uh, when we were a comparative newcomer in the, uh, in the CEA space at the time. Like it was a very small industry. There weren't really anybody else doing this um, back in 2011, 2012, when Freight Farms got started. And the idea originally came from uh, our founders, John and Brad. They were working on trying to find ways to make agriculture accessible to everyone. And where they originally started was looking deeply at rooftop gardens in cities uh, and trying to make rooftop gardens into vegetable producing areas. 
And now that, that you know, it seems like a good idea and it would be a great thing, but it's actually really, really hard to make uh, rooftop economics work, basically. Uh, there's a lot of barriers to getting plants on roofs. There's zoning, there's uh, labor. Every roof is different. Um, it's just a very hard challenge. And so they ended up settling on the shipping container as a really good method of standardization. Shipping containers are already uh, used all over the world. They're sort of the most common way of transporting goods around. And so it seemed very logical to put the farm inside the shipping container and move the farms, not the food. And so the idea was really born out of that and the desire to make farming accessible to everyone. And we figured that if we could make the farm easy to move around uh, and it's a sort of fixed product that we can scale and make cheaply, um, then it's something that many more people can uh, can use. And over the last 10 years, we've gone through many, many generations of farm uh, and really honed our technology into what it is today, which is the premier container farming solution on the market. Um, it's a fully turnkey system, and we've got 500 plus systems worldwide operating today. Let's let's remind everybody what a shipping container is, uh, because if uh, if people are out driving on the highway now, they see shipping containers put on the back of semi trucks because they pick them up at the ports and they are delivering them somewhere else. Or if you see trains go through cargo trains, they'll have shipping containers sitting on those cars. And so for anybody that might be listening to the podcast and saying, wait, wait, I'm having a hard time picturing this. They're, they're what, like, are they 40 feet or so long or a little longer than that? They, so it does depend. There's a variety of shipping containers, but the most common one, uh, which is the one that we use, is a 40-foot shipping container, it's called. Um, and it's 40 feet by 8 feet, essentially, in, in area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's very standardized, so it has sort of these steel blocks at the corners that they use to tie it down to the boat or the truck or the train or whatever it might go on. But the real power of shipping containers and why they took over the world is is what's called intermodal transport, right? So meaning that you can use the exact same container and you can put it on a train or a boat or whatever, um, and it just gets moved between them, but it's the same exact container. Now, I suppose there are refrigerated cars and, you know, livestock cars and some that don't work. So it's some sort of just a standard solid walled container, nothing special like, you know, refrigeration or so forth in it. So our containers are actually a bit special, but they still conform to the the 40 foot standard, which means that they're certified for seaworthiness and can be stacked on vessels and things like that. Uh, We actually build our containers to a specific design that we've developed uh, in China. Uh, We then ship them to the US and that design has all of the insulation that you would need for the farm. It has airflow channels, it has electrical pass-throughs and all the things in the right place so that we can build the farm really efficiently when it gets to the States for our final assembly facility. Uh, And it is not refrigerated in the same sense that a normal reefer is refrigerated. Reefer is what they call, it's the industry slang for a refrigerated container. Mm -hmm. Um, But we do add air conditioning and environmental control is a huge part of making a CEA farm work well. This isn't a retired shipping container that had spent, you know, a hundred years on the ocean or something like this. This is, this is a shipping container that that's coming straight into becoming a farm and it didn't have a life on the rails or something first. Correct. Our, 
so in freight farms history, we used to build farms out of reclaimed containers. Um, but the issue with that is that they're inconsistent and you don't quite know what you're getting. It's very hard to tell if there's a little bit of water damage in the container or the insulation is degraded or any number of things. And so um, in order to get a better product for our customers, a few years ago, maybe three, four years ago, we moved to a standardized container. So you have them, um, and did you say that, are they made in China and then imported? And So the, the container itself is made in China. Um, we have a, a very global supply chain. So some components are, are made in China, others in the U.S. Um, we do all our final integration and testing in New England, pretty close to our headquarters. Uh, and the, the farm itself is, is considered made in America, and well more than 50% of the content is U.S. Gosh, it gives you pause every once in a while. You think you've got an empty container coming over from somewhere. They had to put something in it for the ride, I'd think. <laughs> oh, we do. Yeah, oh, yeah absolutely do. Um, we, you know, obviously in an emergency, we will ship a container empty, but it's pretty rare. Um, we will sometimes ship our own cargo because we have things that come over, but uh, we will often ship other people's cargo. And, you know, one of the interesting things that we're able to do is, is, actually leverage the high freight rates that are happening right now to use our container space to offset the cost of shipping the containers. So you might read that because of the pandemic, freight rates are at an all-time high, um, but we, for the most part, don't feel that impact too much because we um, ship other people's goods. So you would, it's, it comes in, so you, it's put on the back of a truck. You need to have like a crane take them off then or... Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking it, you know, it, a big, heavy thing. And how you get it, get it working to sit. Yeah. So there's basically three methods that people use. Uh, uh, you can use what's called a container handler, which is what they would use in the port. It's a special machine that basically is meant for ISO container handling only. Um, most people would not have that in their neighborhood, but when it comes off the boat, they might use that. Mm -hmm. uh, often with farm deliveries, we use a crane. Uh, to just lift it up and put the farm down. And then the third way is what's called the Landol, uh, which is L-A-N-D-O-L-L. -L. Um, but it's a type of basically trailer for, it's a type of flatbed trailer that, that tilts up and allows you to set a container down without any other handling, essentially. Mm -hmm. So depending on the context of where the farm is going, we will use one of those methods. Um, but it's really situational. Well, let's talk about where, where you do put these. I mean, describe to me the places that, that they reset. Is it, it typically in a city or is it typically in like a, a abandoned factories or, or where typically do, they, do you have these farms situated? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think to understand this question, you really need to look at CEA broadly and and our product specifically and follow the economics of it. Because at the end of the day, our customers are running businesses and they, you know, they are more successful and they buy more farms when those businesses are, are profitable. And so what you see is that our farms tend to follow the economics and the economics of CEA are such that um, you'll be more profitable in places where some resource is limited. The farm is extremely water efficient. It's about 99% more water efficient than traditional ag. It's extremely land efficient and it can operate in any outside conditions. So our farms tend to live 
Uh, yes, in cities, because cities are limited in land and sometimes have high produce prices. But more often, they live in places where resources are more explicitly constrained. So places like islands, um, where Caribbean islands are actually very um, low in water as well, right? They're surrounded by water, but it's salt water, so you can't use it to irrigate. And they're low on land. Uh, they're also in the far north, so Alaska, Canada, Sweden, anywhere with a short growing season or a lot of cold. Um, and you will also find them, you know, in the Middle East, any place that's particularly hot, also has water shortages, but you can't grow for a lot of the year. So those are the places where you're going to see a lot of farms. And then we really have farms scattered throughout as well. Um, essentially any place where there's demand for local produce, you'll see them. I'm wondering if you could ever find people that are kind of at um, a spot where there's a fork in the road and they can say, well, I might be able to get 20 acres here out on the, the edge of Boston someplace and, and produce some foods, or I might be able to get a container. Uh, it's probably not that simple, but is there some, some trade-offs that people are saying, I'm going to try to, to see how far I have to move away from a city and get space to be uh, conventional, providing with CSAs or farmers markets versus uh, this is an option that I might be able to have a, a farm in a container. Yeah, I think you find uh, a lot of our customers, you know, as they start their businesses, they do come from all walks of life, which I think is an amazing thing about our tech and that it's accessible enough that you really don't have to have farming experience to, to do it. Um, and if you don't have farming experience, you, you don't necessarily want to move out. I can tell you having house shopped around Boston that finding 20 acres on the outskirts of Boston means you have to move really far. <laughs> right. Um, that is a, that is a punishing commute. Uh, and so I don't think that people are mostly evaluating us in that trade-off. I think they're looking at it more in terms of not how far do I have to change my community to provide, but what could I do in the context that I have to provide for my community? And then when you think about it that way, the scope tends to be more limited. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's more, it's more, how can I help where I am than how do I become a farmer? No holds barred, I think. Sure. Sure. How many um, are restaurants? Do, do restaurants uh, set up their own farm? Yes. Uh, it's often a like operation that's sort of adjacent to the restaurant. In many cases, what we actually see is that our, our customers, customers are restaurants. So, you know, if you're operating, let's say you're operating two farms, you might have a handful of different crops that you're growing and you're growing a substantial amount of them. So two farms you are growing somewhere in the equivalent of, you know, 300 to 400 pounds of produce per week if you're growing lettuce. So restaurants are a prime candidate for selling that produce. They care a lot about quality. They often have specific requirements that are easier to achieve in a CEA context, like um, coloring of plants, for instance, or particular flavor profiles or things that you can achieve when it's more repeatable. Uh, and then what we often see is that people prefer to sell most of their produce, like maybe 50 to 80% to restaurants because uh, they're predictable, but then sell the rest via CSA or farmer's markets or the other channels that are sort of higher margin, but less predictable, if you will, right? You just don't know how many people are going to show up at the farmer's market on a given weekend. 
So if I could drive far enough that I was actually going to get land and try to do some farming for, you know, specialty crops of, of some sort, what I, the first thing I think I would do would drive out there, stand around and look and see, gee, what am I going to do with this? And so now I'm trying to picture what that's like. You walk into a shipping container and you've got, you've got this great empty shipping container and, and you, you kind of size it up and say, hmm, how are we going to set this up? Do you guys get involved with that? Do you come in and say, okay, here's what, here's what you need to do? Yeah, so we've got a lot of best practices and education that we give our farmers. Um, we operate what's called Farm Camp, for instance, which is sort of a, it's a farmer boot camp, if you will, uh, and helps teach. We also, through the software, we have crop planning tool that helps understand how I'm actually going to lay out my farm, how, what is my demand, like, how should I be planting? What is the spacing of these plants in the farm? Uh, when do I need to harvest? So we provide a lot of cues for the users. But what we, you know, overridingly, what this does come down to when you're operating a farm or any business is you've got to, you've got to produce what your customers want. So in most cases, when someone gets their farm, what we encourage them to do is essentially a few harvests of sampling. So you get your customers lined up whoever that might be, whether it's your neighbors or some restaurants downtown or a grocery store and you ask them what they want and then you try to grow it and you get it. So you're happy with it. And then you show it to them and they say, Oh yeah, I would order this much of this. Um, and then you build your, your farm plan around what your customers want. Cause if you're, if you're making some awesome produce, but no one's going to buy it, then it doesn't work. So the next place is somewhere along the lines has to stop start next is going to be seeds as those seeds are they going to go into uh soil or will it go into a substrate when you're yeah so in our farms um the seeds go into substrate we primarily recommend the cocoa core substrates um although we have farmers who operate successfully with many different types uh and um, yeah, I mean, the soilless nature of it can be controversial in some cases, but then I think people try the produce and are tend to be convinced. But now, does anyone put soil in them or are they pretty much all substrates? They're all substrates. So if you start with a substrate then that you're going to be, do you have several levels or is it floor level and then a medium or... Um, uh, what's, you know, how many, are there layers of substrates, I guess, or levels of substrates within the farm? Mm, sort of. So I'll, I'll explain how it works. So basically there's a germination area in the farm and, uh, you know, you start like in a 10 by 20 tray, like a standard tray and the substrates we use, you know, whether it's, um, you know, peat or rock wool or whatever, those fit into the, the tray um, and you seed into the tray with the substrate into the hole in the center of the substrate that goes into the nursery station. And that's where germination happens in the first few weeks, usually two to three weeks of plant life happen there. Uh, the farm can hold about 2,500 seedlings at a time. And then when the seedlings get too big and they're, they're sort of an art to knowing when the right time the transplant is, we, we help farmers understand this and, and time it properly, the plants get moved to the, the main cultivation area, we call it. And that's a vertical panel that uses a different water delivery mechanism uh, that's more 
akin to a, um, it's not exactly an NFT system, but basically there's a wicking strip that helps deliver water to each individual plant evenly. Mm-hmm. Now, the next couple things that are necessary then, I guess, is uh, we need to talk about light and water. So if you've got this and nutrients. So I don't know what I'm missing out, but the other big category is once you've got the space and once you've got the substrate and once you've got the genetics, then um, what are you adding? What are the what are the nutrients? How how much water? Which I'm I'm sure there's uh, easy explanations on getting water depending on where you're located and and then uh, how you make up for the lack of sunlight. So how do you want to tackle those? Yeah, and the one I would add also is air. Air, um, air, air. I forget about air, and that actually air's got an awful lot of things plants need. It does, yeah. So, um, but we can start on the water and nutrient side. So. You know, one of the coolest things about hydroponics is the water efficiency. So our farm uses about five gallons of water a day. It depends on your performance. And that I would say that is sort of an average. If you're in a humid climate, it can easily be zero or even water positive because it captures some water from the environment. Uh, we use a recirculating system, which is why the water usage can be so low. And into that, we essentially manage nutrients and we use a really any nutrient that our customers want. We have our own line of nutrients that we understand really well. So that's what we prefer people use because it's a lot easier to help them with it. Uh, and those nutrients are both your, your macronutrients, your NPK, as well as micronutrients. And they're balanced such that you control both the nutrient content of the water, as well as the pH of the water. And you, you leverage the pH to help with um, the uptake of the nutrients and manage that properly. Uh, we have a, a dosing system that essentially monitors all of those and doses pieces of nutrient as needed into the water. And it's always monitoring um, 24-7. Mm-hmm. So I think does that answer the, the water component? Well, you mentioned P and K, um, so, the, so the, the nutrients. But beyond those, those kind of nutrients like P, P and K, what about um, – is there – uh, are, are microbes ever offered? Do you have biologicals that, that get, get into the system too? We do. And that is something that uh, we'll work with farmers on. We, we generally prefer to help people towards a biological uh, solution when possible. So some farmers are more down that road than others, um, but it's something we really like to see. And uh, we, we don't have biologics in our nutrient line, but we definitely um, have many that we recommend and we use with farmers on a regular basis, either for different kinds of pest control or additives um, for growth or different things. Mm-hmm. So um, microbes. So you can, you can, um, you can be able to do something that's basically like giving probiotics to humans, but uh, probiotics to the plants that are grown in, in these container farms then. Yeah, and I think you're, it's partially for the plants, but it's also partially to prevent the growth of bad microbes. Mm. Because what can happen in a recirculating systems especially is that if you get um, a bad microbe that starts multiplying, uh, essentially in the absence of good microbes, just like you know in your stomach, um, that can be very problematic for the farm and for the growth. So mm-hmm. that's something we really try to help people avoid. And you'll sometimes see the growth of bad microbes actually when uh, when the farm is 
almost too clean. You know, if someone has really aggressively cleaned the farm, it's much easier for bad microbes to take hold. And in that case, we would recommend that you do inoculate with a, with a good microbe. What about uh, how you accomplish photosynthesis uh, with artificial light rather than sun? How do you, how do you balance? How do you match up with what, what the sun's able to do outside? Yeah. So, uh, well, one of the ways we outmatch the sun is in consistency. So it is the same every day, 365 days a year, right? Exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, what we do is we actually balance the light in our farm so that, um, essentially we only give the plant the wavelengths that it needs. So that's a, a red wavelength on the sort of long side of red and then a blue wavelength. And so, uh, counterintuitively, the plants kind of look gray under that light. I don't know if you've ever seen it up close, but the plants can actually look kind of gross. Um, but what you're actually seeing is that the plants aren't reflecting any light back at you. They're using all of the red and blue together to photosynthesize. And there's no, you know, when a leaf looks green, what you're actually seeing is photons that aren't being used by the leaf bouncing back at you. And so in, in generating the spectrum we do, the goal is to keep the plant happy, but not waste any photons that would otherwise get bounced around the farm and, and cost energy. Yeah. So what about the nutrition of what's grown? Do any of the people that have started the farms, have they tested so that there's going to be some skeptics that are saying, gee, I'm not sure whether you've got, you know, the nutrients I'm looking for as a consumer, you know, and then what I might be able to get in soil outdoors. Does, has any of them, have any of them or your, your own company done nutritional testing? Yes, we do. Um, and we do bricks testing on, on our test crops often. Uh, and we find that it, we are consistently generating more proteins and more sugars um, in our crops than what we would get off the shelf. And I think, you know, it's a, perhaps a bit of a myth to attribute all of that to the hydroponic nature of it. Uh, you know, my take on it is that you're actually seeing substantial improvement because uh, of what's happening to the plant after harvest. And that's something that I think is really worth talking about because it's a key difference with local food. If you go to the store, um, even if you go to Whole Foods or whatever, and you buy lettuce, that lettuce has been on a journey to get to you. And that journey takes a while. And um, uh, while that journey is happening, it's degrading. Sure. And so one of the big differences with our farms is, yes, they're hydroponic, but also you're eating it right away. And it doesn't have to go on that, that long journey to get to you. Yeah, no. Well, that's that's a really, really good point. And then there are some produce that actually has to be picked early, too, because it's got to take into account that it's going to be 10 days or or longer before it's on shelves on the East Coast. Uh, so there's so the journey does have something that should be considered, which brings up the other point then. And that is your carbon footprint, uh, greenhouse gases, uh, this kind of system. As somebody's saying for, you know, for what they're going to be able to produce, how how do you compare uh, when looking at your impact on on the climate? For sure, this is an amazing question, and I think it's one where um, people do find it easy to 
either criticize or greenwash the CEA space, and neither is quite right. Um, this was absolutely a topic at Indoor AgCon uh, last week, and I think is one that's really important for the industry to face because it's, in some cases, the elephant in the room. And, you know, we've done a full life cycle analysis of our produce, uh, and the conclusions are probably what you would expect, but I think we're really good for us to formally put out on, on paper. And you can um, check out this uh, infographic that we put together. If you want, I can send it along. It's public. Uh, but what we found was that all of the, all of the technical components of our farm. So some people react because they say, okay, well, you've got a big metal container and you've got LEDs and all that. Those must take a lot of carbon to make. Uh, and they do take carbon to make, but the actual impact of that is sort of similar to the tractor and the barn and everything that a traditional farm would have. And, and actually, in both cases, it's a really small slice um, where both traditional farming and indoor ag, where the impacts really come into play is in the use side of the life cycle analysis. And for traditional ag, what you see is big impacts on transport. So from farm to table, and there's some studies that have just come out implying that this impact is actually worse than usually modeled. Um, and then also on water use on traditional ag. So water use is indirectly in electricity use. Something like 20 to 30% of California's electricity is spent pumping water around, uh, which I don't think that everyone is sort of aware of the impact of that. Mm -hmm. And... Um, for the CEA side, what you see is you see almost no water use and you see much less land use. There's also this other piece of pesticides and, and herbicides and chemicals, which is really hard to quantify for tr traditional ag. And we didn't actually even go there in our LCA, but other folks have. Um, we don't use any of that in indoor ag. But in indoor ag, we use much more energy. And so what it comes down to is where are you getting that energy from? And in the life cycle analysis, what you see is that if you get the energy from coal, for instance, it is much worse for the environment from a pure carbon standpoint to grow your produce this way than in traditional ag. It's about 10x worse from, for, on a carbon basis. But if you get your energy from wind, it's about four times better. And so the swing is massive. And one of the things we've put in place to really help our farmers is the ability for any U.S. farmer to easily sign up for renewable energy source for their farm. Um, we have a partnership with a company called Arcadia that provides electricity through community solar wind to um, residential and small businesses. We also put a lot of energy into making the farm efficient, both from climate management and, and air handling those elements, as well as the actual LEDs we use. And so, you know, as we're putting energy into being more energy efficient, we're also trying to help farmers sign up for the right energy and trying to raise awareness that this is actually an issue. And one of the really interesting things for me at, at um, conference last week was everyone in the room was very aligned that controlled environment agriculture is a necessary adaptation to climate change. Uh, it can be a mitigation, but it is more an adaptation in a lot of ways. But to be successful, the, the industry needs to shift to running solely on renewables. And so I think that's something we will see as a focus um, over the next few years. 
Well, another focus we need to talk about is the economics of it. So if you are a farmer, you hope to produce food and you maybe you are a restaurant yourself and you're producing to be able to put through your restaurant. But if you are trying to produce food and sell it, um, how do the economics shake out? And, and you know, what can you what can you look at to be able to produce? What's the production that can come from how much lettuce or how much whatever prominent vegetables you use that you're producing? Yeah, so we always target our farm so that um, if you're if you're operating well, a two year payback is what you should expect. Uh, so that is sort of our benchmark. It's how we think about pricing. It's how we think about success for the model. Uh, and you know the yields we've been able to get have grown a lot over the years just as the technology improves and as the knowledge of how to grow improves in our spaces. Um, but, you know, to put it concretely, like in one farm, uh, you should be able to grow about a thousand heads of lettuce per week. Now you don't have to grow lettuce. You can grow lots of other things. And the profitability of that is going to depend on your customer base and what exactly they want, because not all customers will want the same thing. Um, but in sort of the average case, we're targeting a two-year payback on investment. What are the other things you can grow besides lettuce? So you can grow lots of things. Uh, and we have grown many, many. I think our total tally is somewhere north of 500. Um, but I'll start with sort of what customers, I would say, normally grow and then into more of the wild and wacky things that we grow in our lab sometimes. Um, so a lot of customers grow leafy greens. They're very easy to start with. And there's many more than just lettuce. So, you know, chard, bok choy, spinach, um, arugula, wasabi arugula. Uh, there's a hundred different kinds of lettuces and various things there. There's also a lot of crops that grow well with lettuce. So often people will intercrop radishes with lettuce because the canopy of the lettuce doesn't block the radish so much. Um, those are also a faster harvest, so you can cultivate them quicker. Um, turnips, people grow so a variety of root vegetables and then herbs uh, are pretty common. So we're experimenting with some, you know, really cool pineapple sage and stuff in our farm right now, but people grow basil and all different varieties of that and cilantro and parsley and all the things you might expect. Um, but not so much fruit, not so much fruit. So you can grow fruit. Um, we're growing tomatoes in our test farm right now. It's a little bit less common in the field. We grow vertically. So heavy fruits um, need to be supported a little bit more. Otherwise they'll pull the plants down a little bit, but we do grow pumpkins for instance, in our test farm and it works just fine. You just kind of got to watch the pumpkin and make sure you hold it up. Um, and yeah, you know, we also grow flowers. We have customers who grow flowers, both for medicinal or ornamental use. Uh, and the list goes on. Yeah. Doing some experiments with hops right now. Now, what about, say, back to, to restaurants or grocery stores? Do, are there any of them that are using this as a, as a marketing story, too, or that, that maybe they're putting a farm right next to the restaurant and saying that we're growing locally or even give tours or have windows or something so that their customers can see this farm that's practically on the premises. Yeah, it definitely 
It definitely happens. Um, we, we definitely see it used for marketing in both grocery and in restaurant. Uh, we are generally opposed to windows. So windows uh, affect the night day cycle that we're able to keep. And you'll actually see growth impacts in any place in the farm where you get light in from the window. Mm-hmm. We definitely do have customers who do it. Um, you know, sometimes in a more educational context, they'll put in a window to help under, you know, help passersby understand what's going on. But if you're growing for output, I would not recommend a window. Well, it's really, really fascinating. I think that what you're, what you're doing, it just, uh, I can see where there's, uh, there's a lot of interest in this. And, and I guess the, the other thing I think about though, is that you could create the um, equivalent of of the inside of a container without necessarily bringing in containers, couldn't you? I mean, couldn't you take like an abandoned shopping center or something and be able to build what would be the equivalent size and setup as a shipping container in an in an area and produce food in it, for example? Because there's just so much empty uh, parking lots and empty buildings uh, around the country anymore. Uh, so is it is it an alternative that you wouldn't necessarily need a shipping container to make a shipping container-like farm? Of course, yeah. And uh, you can absolutely do that. And we actually sell our software and our controls to people who want to set up custom farms, and we'll help them with that. But the, um, the reason we do the shipping container is because it's much more scalable to build a product. So, you know, if you build one, let's say you have a, you find an abandoned warehouse, um, you're going to have to do a lot of engineering to get everything set up in there. And by the time you're done with all that work, it would have been cheaper to just pay for the container to show up Um, because we make the containers on an assembly line and they're, they're much more efficient in in how they're built. We know it's going to work because it's the same product that everyone else has. And we know we can support it because it's the same product everyone else has. And so um customs totally fine and many people do do that um we're not out there trying to compete with the plenties of the world who are doing huge custom setups um but if you're trying to get started uh getting the containers actually going to be faster so put it inside the abandoned warehouse so jake if i told you i'm i'm convinced i want to become a farmer Ballpark, how much am I going to have to spend uh, totally to be able to get set up that if I want to be able to buy the equipment and, and you know, get a shipping container and get started farming, how much money would I have to have on hand to be able to jump in? So the, the MSRP for the farm is around 150K. And then there is some level of startup cost that's going to depend on where you are and um how much it costs to ship there and all that stuff. But, you know, you should budget um, maybe 10 or 20 K for that. Uh, and that's pretty much it, right? A little bit of supplies, a little bit of software to get off the ground and um, you'd be off and running. Now it's worth noting that um, many of our farmers don't necessarily have 175 grand lying around. Um, we finance the farms and we'll help you find financing. Uh, many of our Farms are financed through well-known banks or USDA loans or things like that. So just like any other far piece of farming equipment, you can uh, finance it, you know, to pay for it all up front in, in many cases. Um, but you certainly could. 
Well, you know, anymore, that's a couple of electronic vehicles that are coming out, some of the higher end, and they don't give you a thousand pounds of lettuce a week. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, it's so if people would like to know more about this and find out how they could, uh, how can they find information? How do they either, you know, reach you and learn more about these, about these systems? Yeah. So the number one thing is uh, just to check out freightfarms.com. Uh, we've got lots of information there. We've got our business planning tool. You can reach out to our sales team um, and they can hook you up with a lot of information. We also have a YouTube channel that has a lot of different videos and you can watch a bunch of uh, like tours of the farm and things like that. So you can get involved that way. Um, we also do fairly regular uh, what we call digital discovery days where you get to take a virtual tour inside the farm. Something we started doing in the pandemic era um, that uh, was really successful because turns out not everyone is around Boston. Um, and then you can come here and, and check it out. Uh, we've got farms at our headquarters and we have regional partners um, in Chicago and elsewhere who have farms that you can tour um, if you're uh, interested. So Jake, before we go, I have a couple more quick questions for you. And one might not be that quick. And that is, how'd you get here? Uh, this isn't the kind of thing that, you know, you were a little kid and instead of going out and playing baseball, you said, I'm just dreaming of someday having a freight farm. You know, it's uh, uh, so how, how does one go about finding themselves in, in freight farms like yours? What was your journey? How did you get here? Uh that's a, that's a, yeah, not necessarily a quick answer. I mean, I think, so I, I've always known that I wanted to be an engineer growing up. Um, I did play baseball and other things growing up too, but, uh, you know, I always knew that I wanted to build stuff and I played with Legos and all the cliche things when I was a kid. Uh, I got a mechanical engineering degree and, um, you know, essentially in, in that time I was very, uh, I was a sponge about learning what makes the world a better place when I was in college and around that time. And so, you know, I've always tried to have jobs that in some way made the world a better place. And immediately after college, I actually started a company called Little Bonsai. This was back in uh, 2011. And Little Bonsai was a product studio that developed some sustainable products, um, really simple stuff. Like we did a toothbrush and, um, a keychain and some other stuff like that. Um, and one of the things we did in that company was we were actually part of the Mass Challenge Accelerator. And we happened to be in the Mass Challenge Accelerator, the same cohort that John and Brad were in the Mass Challenge Accelerator starting freight farms. And we sat near them. And so I got to know those guys that summer. And then life goes on and I went and had a few other jobs and uh, you know, always looking for those jobs that would make the world a better place, but picking up a lot of skills and learning how to build things better uh, over the intervening time. And then, you know, uh, recently I, I moved back to Boston a few years ago and it coincided with freight farms evolution and maturation to sort of what it is today. And it was a perfect time for me to come on board and make an impact with all the stuff that I'd learned. So that's kind of the, the nutshell. Well, that's a great nutshell. And I suppose there's some others like you that have a, a journey. And it's interesting, too, that there's a part of it that you've been thinking about, you know, how you go the right direction, what's the right steps, what's contributing to 
um, the environment and and uh, I can see how you can find lots of satisfaction in the areas you're working in. So let me ask you this. We are, we are hiring, shameless plug. We're, uh, I've got several positions on my team. If you're an engineer and you want a job in CEA, come hit me up. Can they work from home or is this one of these things they got to go to a, a space, you know, like in Boston, because if you're actually making stuff, uh, I, I think there might be a limit to how much you can do from your home office. It depends on the team. So, I mean, I run both the hardware and the software teams. And if you're on the hardware team, you pretty much got to be here. Uh, if you're on the software team, you can work from home yeah. to some level. Depends on what part of the software you're working on, but generally it's okay. Now, let me wrap up by asking you, you look down the road the next five years, say, five years from now. What are you optimistic about? I mean, where could this be? How do you see this evolving? And if we were going to say, let's going to have this conversation again about five years from now, what's the best picture that we could be talking about at that time? I think... That's an interesting question, and I appreciate the optimistic spin on it because I think that uh, climate change is a real problem, and I think that in the next five to ten years, we're really going to see pressure put on CEA to step up in terms of its place in the food system, uh, and I think we're going to see, you know, controlled environment ag do that and step up and and produce at scale. Um, there's a lot of maturing of different technologies that's going on now that will help with that. But one of the big things that is going to push it, that is not optimistic thing, is that the climate is changing and, and water is becoming more scarce, especially in California. Um, if you look at the level and levels in Lake Mead and the levels in the reservoirs in California, I mean, those are the water sources that feed most of the vegetables that we eat in the U.S. And so as, as those change that's going to have real impact on the food system. Well, unless they're going to be in shipping containers, for example, and in areas that have still are getting 35, 40 inches of rain a year versus the areas that have all that sunshine and are getting 12 or 20 uh, inches of, of rain a year and running uh, a week at a time of over a hundred degrees too. So there's that. So I'm, I'm glad you appreciate the fact that I was putting a positive spin on it, but now you, you've puzzled me. I'm trying to get back to another <laughs> more, more positive. Well, There's a lot to be concerned about though. I think the positive spin is that, you know, I, I do think that the technology that's being deployed these days in CEA is good enough to produce food at scale in a predictable way and can displace that need. And so, like I mentioned before, or I alluded to, I think of climate change solutions as living on a spectrum. And on one spectrum is the mitigation side of things. So just purely how can we reduce, you know, carbon emissions, methane emissions. On the other side of the climate spectrum, I think of it as the adaptation side, which is solutions that, okay, like we accept that this is going to happen to some degree, but we also know um, optimistically that humans will adapt and live in the world as it changes. And so I think CEA solutions can play in both of those. If you're using the correct power profiles, they are a mitigation on tradition, what traditional ag is doing. And, you know, in 10 years from now, as water usage evolves in the West, um, we may see them coming into their own as an adaptation technology uh, as well. 
Jake, as we wrap up, I want to remind everybody again, CEAs, you keep saying the acronym, and for people listening, they're not used to CEAs. So It is Controlled Environment Agriculture, which mm-hmm. is slightly different than Greenhouse in that uh, Greenhouse isn't fully artificial from a light and atmosphere standpoint, but Controlled Environment Agriculture generally is. Well, we've learned a lot today. I want to thank you. Jake Felser with Freight Farms, thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you like what you hear, go to farmtotabletalk.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter or go to iTunes to subscribe and give us a review and a rating. Thanks for listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Roger Wasson.